Wild Lives by Phonographic. Hey, and welcome to Wild Lives by Phonographic, a podcast about wild animals and their people. It's great to have you with us. I'm Rochelle, and today I'm introducing you to my dear mate, Paolo O'Connor, and he'll be telling us all about his wild work with the incredible orcas of the Georgia Strait, which is on Canada's west coast. Now, Paolo has been growing his wide breadth of wildlife knowledge for pretty much his whole adult life. Over the years, he's worked as a ranger and naturalist at the World Heritage-listed Waterton Glacier International Peace Park, as well as in Hawaii's Haleakala National Park. He's conducted field research with the Colorado State Uni, as well as the Uni of Hawaii, and he's had ecologist postings in both Puerto Rico and American Samoa. Now, we first met years ago in Churchill in subarctic Canada, where I was photographing polar bears and Paolo was working as a naturalist. And his incredible stories of his work with the killer whales of British Columbia pretty much cemented our friendship because they were awesome. So I'm stoked to have him with us today and to share some of those stories with you. Hey, Paolo, how's it going? Hey, Phonographic, how are you doing? <laughs> I don't get called that very often, but I'm very, very stoked to have you with us. Let's talk about your years working with the killer whales. So you spent years working as both a Zodiac pilot and adventure guide in Victoria, and that's an area of British Columbia famous for its orcas. Can you remember the very first time you saw an orca in the wild? Well, I can remember how long it took to actually see one. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I started out as a guide after arriving here in Canada, and... It's just the time of year that the tours tend to start around here. So mm-hmm. we're always trying to predict when the return date is for the residents because the funny thing is about the way the orca are called here, we have residents and we have transients, and it's actually the residents that go away for part of the year. So anyway, go figure that you go out. out on the boat and you hope to see them. But I think we had to take nine trips before I actually saw one. Wow. <laughs> Do, do you remember how that felt when you finally eventually got to see one? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was exactly the same feeling that I had every single day that I encountered these animals. Every time. It's like the first time. You almost don't believe they exist because they're a mythical creature in so many ways. And obviously they're here and there's research. But until you see one, it's hard to believe you'll have that opportunity to be in the wild with this top predator who's actually one of the most amazing creatures on earth so as elusive as they were when you finally got to see them that kind of got you hooked right (laughs) absolutely and because of the, the amount of area here that they live in you know every encounter is different so you always went out expecting expecting something to be different in in, you know 10 years i was doing the guiding i've never had the same day on the water Mm. so your work with killer whales was mainly in the strait of georgia which is an arm of the pacific ocean and now that's between vancouver island and mainland british columbia as well as uh, washington state it's an area of around 240 kilometers or 150 miles long. And in that area, there are two types of killer whales, which you mentioned earlier. There's the resident orcas and then there's the transients. So let's talk about the residents. How can you identify a resident orca? Sure. The area that you described there, a very a, a more common term that's being used now is a sailor's sea. 
that follows basically the language groups of the First Nations. So the indigenous people that live in this area, Salish is the language. Mm. And it covers that entire region. So the Canadian Geographical Naming Organization and the U.S. one have now adopted the Salish Sea. Mm. And that's kind of neat because the orca eat salmon, as do the indigenous populations around here. So it kind of integrates the area. But getting back to how we identify them, residents have a slight variation in their dorsal fin. So the dorsal fin is the tall fin on the back of the mm. orca. And transients have more of a pointy tip to that. But that's not exactly foolproof either. So you have to get used to the saddle patch. And the saddle patch is an area of white that is on the back of the orca, basically behind the dorsal fin. And imagine a saddle on a horse. Mm -hmm. That's where the name came from. So both sides have a white patch. The white patch varies by side. So in the photo identification, which is the way we've really learned about the orca here over time, the one side is the side that's always taken for the identification. And also with transients, that patch uh, tends to be a little bit further forward on the body than it would on a resident. And then the other way, after so many photos have been taken of them over the past two decades, is by scars and scratches, which are not necessarily part of the morphology of the animal, but they're things that happen over time, whether it's play fighting or accidental cuts during hunting. Those two help people identify. So in that area, there are three main resident pods. I think they're J, K, and L. Can you tell us That's a little true. bit about them? Yep. Yep, the J, the K, and the L make up the southern resident community. So of the resident orca, which are the ones that eat salmon, we have two communities in British Columbia. We have the southern residents, which are here off the coast of Vancouver and Victoria, and we have the northern residents, which are further up in the Strait of Georgia Mm. or the Sailor Sea. Mm. And they have a fairly distinct line around the Nanaimo, British Columbia, between uh, the way these pods will circulate. So the pods A through, oh, i got to practice my alphabet here, Rochelle. <laughs> a, through, a through I are up a little bit further up the coast. Uh-huh. So JKNL are now a population of only 76 resident orca amongst the three pods. Mm. Pods are delineated by their genetic makeup because the mating only occurs uh, between those three pods and also their vocalizations is how you tell the pods apart. So each of them are distinct. K has always been the smallest in modern times that we know of. L has been the largest pod. In fact, there's two subgroups in L. And then J's have been the oldest of the pods in terms of having the most cultural heritage. They had the oldest members, but they are now gone as well. So... Those three pods associate with each other here in the southern area. They meet between each other. They do go away during the winter months here in the northern hemisphere, which would be about October, November until about April. Where do they go? It's believed that in those months they're actually following the Chinook, which is their preferred salmon of choice, which is the largest of the salmon here. They go off to Columbia, the mouth of the Columbia River, which is closer down to uh, Oregon, Astoria, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And the further south, the L's have been spotted and seen as far south as Monterey Bay in California, mm-hmm. uh, with additional sightings of the K and the L pods in San Francisco Bay, under the Golden Gate. 
the J-pod uh, tends to stick closer to this area, and they tend to go down into Puget Sound, into the southern Salish Sea around Seattle yeah. during the months of November to April. But then come April, all three will show up, and they'll be here in the central parts of the Georgia Strait, which is around Vancouver and Victoria. Uh, in those resident pods, are there any particular individuals that stand out? We usually look to the oldest individuals, and these are matrilineal societies. So the females far outlive the males. Mm. Uh, upwards of 80 to 90 years is the length of life expectancy for the females. Their average age would be around 50. Oh, wow. Life expectancy males are about 29. Oh, why is that? Well, like other animal communities we learn around the world, such as elephants, uh, the females tend to keep the cultural knowledge. And so that's why they live much beyond menopause. Mm. And again, this is quite rare. So chimpanzees, elephants, humans are some of the, and orca are some of the few animal populations that see females existing far beyond their reproductive years. Mm. And that's because the culture. So the feeding strategy, the language, all of that is passed down through the mothers. So those are the ones we tend to track. I mean, in my career here, Granny was one of the most famous orca. She was a leader of the J-Pod and possibly of all the Southern residents. And she was lost just a few years ago at an approximate age of 105. And in the time that I've been here, we've gone down from 88 orca, we're down to 76. And quite a few of the ancients are gone. So mm. quite a few of the orca that now exist have all been born since the 1970s. We're not sure what that loss of culture means long-term for the populations. So in the same area as those guys, you've got the transients or the Biggs killer whales. How, do the, how are they different to the residents? Well, they have a different genetic makeup. They primarily have a different prey strategy. So genetically, it's been shown they've diverged over 700,000 years ago in these waters. So even though they look very similar, transients are slightly larger. They grow to an average of about eight meters in length, whereas mm. residents are about seven meters. Their hunting strategy is very different, so they don't organize in the same large groups. So the residents, the salmon hunters, the JK and L pod, let's say, they have matrilines. Mm. So the pods are made up of females and then two, three, and four generations of offspring from those females all associated in a matriline. Then those matrilines closely associate and that's what becomes a pod. Mm. With the transients, they're not hunting fish, they're actually hunting other mammals. So be it humpback whales or porpoise or white-sided dolphin or mm. stellar sea lion or harbor seals, which are also acoustically sensitive animals. In mm. other words, they all exist in a world of sound under the ocean. So the transients can't exist in big groups because they need to sneak upon their prey. And they actually don't vocalize as much as the residents will. Residents make all the noise they want because they're basically hunting fish. And the fish aren't as sensitive as, say, mammal prey would be. So the transients don't associate in big groups. They have small groups of typically three to six orca. And they don't always necessarily have to be with their own mother. Typically, males might disperse and then start hanging out with a matriline from another mother in the transients. So, so in the transient pods, how many individuals are there usually? Typical sightings would be three at a time, mm. three to six. There have been larger associations seen, and we saw them, you know, several times a year. You might see 
30 to 50 transients hanging out together mm. um, for maybe a day or a week. And they will have a coordinated hunting strategy amongst them, but typically it's really a small group. So they're actually harder to see. And at one time in the early research here in the 1980s, it was assumed that there were many fewer transient whales, but of course that's not the case anymore. Now we have over 500 documented individuals uh, in Canadian waters, and typically we say about 370 transient whales are hunting here. Do they ever come into conflict with the residents? That is a great question. It's almost never been observed. To my knowledge, only once it was seen in actual physical interaction, and Mm. it was actually the residents that dominated that interaction. Really? Even though the transients are the mammal hunters, yes. And it was basically brushed past and a lot of signaling, sound signaling, and that was kind of a message to the transients. But that's in 30 years of observations here, so obviously it's quite rare. What about, so there are humpbacks in the area as well, and you know it's well documented that orcas will hunt the young of humpbacks. What about in the Salish Sea? How much in, uh, action do they seem to have in that area? Again, in the 30 years that things are being looked at, there's only one photographically documented case of a juvenile humpback being preyed upon by transients here mm. close to Nanaimo, which is a city on Vancouver Island. It is known that they will take anything up to those, even adults, of gray whale and humpback whale. Mm. Uh, the largest prey around here, more typically taken, would be a stellar sea lion. But they're pretty massive themselves. Um, they're pretty huge. Well, they're, they're bulls they are massive. Uh, over a thousand kilograms. Mm. So in terms of behaviours, both residents and transients have pretty interesting behaviours, things like spy hopping, breaching, porpoising and tail slapping. Can you run us through a few of those and and explain what they're about? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, These behaviours have, well, believed to be many different causes. So um, let's say spy hopping. So the vision of an orca is actually quite on par to human vision, and that's including under the water. So uh, when an orca sticks its head above the water, they basically come straight out of the water, and they're actually looking around to see what's going on on the surface of the water. So whether they're looking to see where their family is, or they're looking at humans in the area, or they're looking at the coastline. Hmm. Because again, they would see it in the same way that we would. So that's also used for navigation, we believe. Tail flapping is a form of communication. We assume with all orca, but for the residents, it has an additional purpose because we believe it's used to stun schools of fish and make them easier to catch. So as skilled as orca are at hunters, salmon are quite elusive animals to catch. So Hmm. when they need to catch 30 of them a day, they need to have some techniques to do that. So tail flapping. Uh, works for that. Um, the other one called porpoising, which obviously is associated with porpoise, which is another marine mammal, um, that's a high-speed um, chasing behavior on the surface. And mm. So that could be a hunting strategy. Again, it could be um, a way to travel great distances at a high speed. It could be to remove anything on the skin or scratch an itch. So these behaviors all get these names because it's what 
people who are observing the whales want to see mm. because, you know, typically you're just going to see some fins in the surface. So, What about breaching, though? Uh, breaching is the same to remove, now, remove parasites on their skin mm-hmm. as a form of conflict, you know, between uh, orca and their prey. And breaching takes quite a bit of energy, so it's not something that's done lightly, let's say. But it's also another way to concuss the water, slow down fish, and transmit percussion sounds Mm. for whatever means of communication is needed at the time. Now, speaking of communication, do orcas sing like other whales? You mentioned before that they will make some high-pitched calls and things like that, but what about singing like a humpback does? That's a good question. Singing, not what we're used to with, say, the humpback whales. So orca have three main ways of making sounds. So they emit clicks, and they emit whistles, and they actually make calls. So calls are more what we would describe, say, as a vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whistles are high-pitched single tones that they can actually emit for several seconds, which is another means of communication. But clicks are actually a way of seeing through the water, so they're more of a, a radar. And all of these sounds are made in unique ways, so they don't have vocal cords like humans. Mm. Um, so the sounds, like the calls and the whistles, are made by squeezing air between sacks that are inside of their heads. For wow. the clicks, it's actually a pulse that comes out of a fatty deposit in their head called, uh, funny enough, a melon. <laughs> and the clicks will bounce off of items in the water, whether it's prey or topography under the surface of the ocean and that returns to the orca not through their ears but actually through their bones in their head through wow. their jaw bones and that travels uh, to their uh, sound devices so when we first met years and years ago you were telling me some pretty amazing stories about some of the things that you've seen these guys get up to Tell us some stories, <laughs> PG ones, because obviously oh, we Rochelle. can't tell all of them. <laughs> well, there's, like I said, every single day was different for 10 years. So, mm. I mean, sometimes you see a behavior once and you may never see it again. But, mm. you know, a few times had the privilege of seeing things like I watched a baby get resuscitated in the J-pop uh, just, just a few days after birth. A baby wasn't doing well, wasn't surviving, and the response of the pod at that point is to constantly dive under the juvenile and lift it up out of the water to try and coax it into breathing again. So obviously that's easier above the surface of the water. So different members in the same natural line and some of the different natural lines in the J-pod came in, and for many minutes, I mean, we probably observed for over an hour, kept raising the baby to the surface, raising the baby to the surface, and we departed that day assuming that the baby wasn't going to survive, which it's another whole topic, but then there's a mourning period for the orca as well, oh. um, and they'll t- 
while, even after that cast has passed. Mm. And we assume that's what might have happened here, but within a few days we had reports that, that baby was swimming again and was surviving. So that was quite an amazing thing to watch. Um, in terms of the transient orca, they probably provided the most surprising behaviors because if we encountered them, it was typically during a hunt because they don't really make their presence known otherwise mm. because, again, they're hunting very acoustically sensitive prey. Mm. So one day near Nanaimo, had the boat out. We were watching, uh, actually, there were several pods of transients that day, and we were getting ready to leave, and I was on the bow of the boat, and a seal popped up about 15 meters away from the boat and there were lots of transients in the area and the seal assumed it was going to use our boat in order to get itself out of harm's way. <laughs> so it began swimming towards us. We left the engines off. I was just staring at the seal on the bow of the boat and it got within about three meters of the bow of the boat and a giant transient appeared on the port side of the boat and just slammed into the seal and took it five meters away from my face. <laughs> oh. oh, that poor guy. And the whole boat was just, we just fell into silence, and I don't think anyone spoke the whole two hours back to Vancouver. <laughs> that is such a special experience, but yeah, that would have been pretty full on. Poor little well, dude. Well, for us, not so much for the harbor seal. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's species interactions that really provided some of the best orca watching because we have so many marine mammals out here, and you know, days where you would see Dahl's porpoise, which is the fastest cetacean in the ocean, they would actually take advantage of the orca and they would bow ride on the orca the same way. What do you mean? People are used to seeing, well, you know how people see dolphin bow riding on their boats or porpoise even bow riding. So they get up in the front of the boat and they take advantage of the wave that yeah. the bow of a boat will throw off. Well, orca make a make a bow wave as well when they porpoise at the high speed on the surface swimming and dolls porpoise like to take advantage of that so on multiple occasions we've watched dolls porpoise riding the bows of salmon hunting populations of orca that would have been awesome to see and you know we've seen incredible interactions between porpoise and dolphin and humpbacks and orca and sometimes all at the same time what kind of do you mean at the same time? Like they all just get together and... Well, it's very hard to explain uh, these aggregations. You know, typically it's because of food that's available. Oh, right. So sometimes seals and sea lion and whales and porpoise, not killer whales, but the other types of whales, might all be hunting the same fish. Mm. So it mm. might be herring, which is, a, is on the comeback here in British Columbia. Mm. And so within certain views you'll have pacific white-sided dolphin you know catching fish next to sea lion catching fish next to humpback whales oh that'd be and awesome sometimes they tend to pick on each other so you'll see dolphin throwing themselves on top of the humpbacks and the humpbacks <laughs> crying out whether it's in you know actual pain which <laughs> it's hard to imagine it is actual pain but or they're just playing but Oh, that's you know, those are the special. days that are just, you live for those days. <laughs> it's such a special area. Thank you so much for your time today, Paolo. Awesome to talk to you and hoping to see you soon. 
Uh, it was awesome to uh, speak to you too, and being the wildlife photographer you are, to take the interest in these animals. It just it helps us uh, with the long term conservation. Have people all over the world know about them. Well, thanks, mate. We'll leave it there today. Thanks so much for listening to Wildlife by Fornographic. Now you can find Paolo O'Connor on Instagram at Orca Paolo. And of course, for more wildlife news and adventures, as well as the links directly to Paolo's pages, head to Fornographic.com or Instagram at Fornographic. Wild Lives by Fornographic. Follow us on Omni.fm or search for Wild Lives by Fornographic on iTunes. Subscribe today and you'll never miss an episode.